Hello and welcome to Note Doctors Summer Shorts. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In these short episodes, we will be sharing with each other and all of you musical examples and teaching tips covering a wide range of topics. So if you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for our first ever book club. We are in our second installment of looking at on music theory and making music more welcoming for everyone by Philip Yule. And we've had a great time reading this and discussing the, the intro and the first uh, chapter. So if you missed that episode, you might want to listen to that right now and then come back to uh, this episode as we will be listening or we'll be talking about chapter two and chapter three. Um, and so I thought we could maybe open this up, um, this conversation, because this uh, this first chapter and then the, the next chapter that we're going to look on is is on the white mythologies and Heinrich Schenker and his legacy. And so... Mm-hmm. Ben and Jen, you know this already, but um, we were visiting family in Pennsylvania, and we thought we would take a little side trip to Washington, D.C., because our girls had never been there, and so we were there for, like, I don't know, 24 hours, and because my wife is, like, amazing and insane, we did so many things in 24 hours, (laughs) but one of the things that we did, the first thing we did, was we walked around the, the mall and the Tidal Basin area. Uh, to see all the monuments and things like that. So you have the, the, so we started with the Lincoln Monument, then saw some war memorials, went to the Washington Monument, walked over to the Jefferson uh, Monument, and then made our way around the Tidal Basin through the FDR Monument, and then Mm -hmm. finally the MLK one. And, you know, reading this book, you know, along the way during during my trip and and thinking about these things, I couldn't help but think about the white mythologies mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have told ourselves, right? Because you have these massive uh, monuments, like the Lincoln Memorial is huge, right? I mean, it looks like he could just squash you like a bug with his boot as he's sitting <laughs> up there on high. And of course, the Washington Monument, you know, if we weren't, if we were not G-rated, we could make all sorts of crude jokes about what that monument <laughs> looks like. But it's big, right? It's the the tallest thing on the in the whole uh, the landscape. Um, and then, of course, the Jefferson Monument is huge. And then, have you guys been to the FDR Monument? Mm-hmm. Ever, yeah. All right. So if you haven't, it's really interesting because it's like this series of rooms, like these big outside rooms mm-hmm. um, that kind of tell the story of FDR because he was president for such a long time and for so many important events in U.S. history in the middle 20th century. Um, we actually went through the monument backwards. We went through the end. <laughs> we didn't know that at the time. But at, um, but at the very beginning, and so by the time you get to the, the end of it, you're like, wow, that's a lot of information. You're kind of wanting to move on to the yeah. next thing. But um, as I was leaving, I look over and I see this, um, the statue of FDR in a wheelchair. Um, because he had uh, mm-hmm. uh, polio, and so mm-hmm. he spent much of his life um, seated. Um, and I was really struck by that because 
it was a life-size statue compared to you know the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson mm-hmm. Monument, which are huge, right? And you have this you know life-size statue of you know a president in this little wheelchair that he had made, and you don't even notice it. Like I just didn't even. I thought it was someone like in a wheelchair, like in the distance. Mm. And I thought that was just a really interesting contrast to see the way that um, we remember, you know, individuals and um, how that has changed, right? From, Mm -hmm. you know, this giant statue where we all look up in awe to, okay, we see this man and um, his, in his, in his disability, right? In his, um, Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he can't, doesn't have full movement of his limbs, and yet all the great things that he was able to accomplish. So you have this contrast between, yeah, he did great things, but he was also limited. He was also a human. He also made mistakes. Um, and so mm-hmm. I was struck by that because that was kind of questioning this white mythology that we have about these you know, great men that were just you know, above us and right. uh, we have to venerate at all costs. And then, of course, after that, you get to the Martin Luther King uh, monument which is this like mountain rock mountain that is then has mlk like a statue of him like like pulled out of the mountains mountain of mm-hmm. despair is a uh, stone of hope is i think something of the quote um and so you know here he is huge he's you know, larger than life um but i was struck that as you turn around to see where he's facing he's facing the jefferson Mo- uh, monument oof <laughs> well, and I was going to say, I don't, oh, in my man. memory, and it's been a while since I've been to D.C., even though I grew up a couple hours from there, but in my memory, nowhere does it say, like, Washington was a slave owner, Jefferson was a slave owner, at these huge right. monuments right. to these men. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I'm skipping ahead, I guess, but mm-hmm. that's the same kind of whitewashing that we received right. in our history classes growing up. I... Yeah. I think I learned growing up that Jefferson owned slaves, but not Washington. So, right. you know, I learned that as an adult. <laughs> yeah, we've right. learned a lot of things as, a, as, as adults yeah. that we, we should have known a lot earlier. But I was just struck by, by that. Um, obviously, the, the, the MLK monument is, is a newer construction and so has this more contemporary and modern sensibility about... Mm-hmm history and how we remember things but i was it felt like it was an intentional choice to have it kind of facing um facing jefferson Jefferson. and i was reading on the national parks website how it's actually in line with um the lincoln memorial so it's kind of like creating this triangle Mm. where i'm interested to see how Mm. your thoughts on this is that they're saying how you know jefferson had this ideal of you know everyone is created equal, right? And then Lincoln sort comes of. along and, right, it, it comes <laughs> right. along and you know, has the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> right. And then, you know, Martin Luther King is uh, head of the uh, civil rights movement. But it, again, even framing it like that is kind of whitewashing it in a way. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Jefferson believed that all men were created equal, right? And so that's, that's what we're going to remember. Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky because Jefferson's, I idea for equality or for the pursuit of happiness or whatever the founding fathers idea that this is important an important value an anti-monarch idea mm-hmm. right? right eventually lays the groundwork for that kind of freedom 
for more people, but he was definitely talking about white men. Right. right. 100% yes. You know, I mean, that's the only thing so that was in his that. mind when he said all men are created equal, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was just an interesting thing to observe because it's right there, you know, it's showing this white mythology that we have as Americans and, you know, every country has some type of mythology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what kind of holds us together and those stories are meaningful. Uh, but at least in America and, uh, you know, those mythologies are tied to, you know, whiteness and, and white supremacy. And that's something that uh, Ewell kind of walks through at the very beginning of this chapter too. Um, I think in a, a, a very efficient way, doesn't spend a ton of time with it, but I think he does a good job of kind of explaining um, kind of what those are and how kind of our, uh, our understanding of history and art and things like that are tied to that. What do you all think? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just to think about like the actual laws themselves and like discussion of just like interracial marriages and all the things that were actually legislated to prevent, you know, this kind of like even just inner basic interactions you know it's just like really sad but really important to note and take that into account before you read you know the next part just it's a really important foundation yeah. mm-hmm. if you haven't read the book or it's been a while since you've read the book um chapter two does this beautiful kind of narrative that begins with white supremacy and what that means moves from there into the idea of Western as as a concept that we have carried around and that shows up in our descriptions of music and just life in general. And of course, Western means European and American and is the contrast to somehow just Asian and not other peoples that populate the earth. Um, and And also includes Australia, which is something I hadn't really thought about. But of course... makes sense given you know how that land was colonized so um he moves then from the idea of western into the idea that the ancient greeks are the foundation for our modern civilization basically that Mm -hmm. the ancient greeks um are the foundation for democracy are the foundation for the arts for music theory for Mm -hmm. so many things And then from there into the canon and how that concept is bred from all of those ideas and um, what that means for music theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, uh, this these couple chapters are are consistently um, (laughs) making me feel humbled and like, Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't know that or oh, oh, my gosh. And I mean, one thing that I had never thought about was. Uh, the role of of Egypt and these other other places in in culture, right? And obviously, we know that there were great cultures in these African places and um, uh, Near East and things like that. But you're right; this focus on Greece um, was quite uh, quite profound, I think, and mm-hmm. just assumed. And I think a lot of these things we just assumed to be the case, you know. Um, I thought this was interesting, something I never thought about. This is on page 57, uh, written by uh, Martin Bernal in Black Athena. So we kind of contrast the Aryan model, which is 
the model that all culture and things came from Greece to this revised ancient one where uh, things are coming from you know African and Semitic traditions and you know, mm-hmm. I was like well yeah that that makes a lot of sense and it also makes a lot of sense why that was kind of mm-hmm. covered up because you know, with the, the treatment of Africans and of course you know a long history of anti-semitism things like that where those contributions are you know suppressed and yeah. we bring out yep. those uh, achievements by the Greeks which are adopted to be white right <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah yeah the irony of the yeah. whole thing right? yeah as I was reading this, I could not help but think about the sort of intentional logic divorce that you have to do to, yes. to hold on to this belief, even though I felt like a veil was being pulled back while I was reading, mm. especially the ideas about ancient Greece, because a lot of this comes out of this kind of Christian narrative. Mm-hmm. And that narrative inherently does not take place in any of these places. I mean, Greece comes up m- sort of minimally in the New Testament, but like otherwise, we're talking about. I mean, Egypt is prevalent in the sort of Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. What but we would the call bad the bad guys. They're the bad well, guys. <laughs> but even what we would call Middle East. I mean, what we would call the Middle East or whatever. That's where Jesus is born and lives out his entire mm-hmm. life. That's where, you know, the Jews live out their entire life in that narrative. And so in in adopting this ancient Greek narrative, we are literally intentionally kind of erasing the roots that we're trying to claim are the background for all of this. It's just Mm -hmm. really interesting and all clearly in the service of or in the name of whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, no, I agree 100%, 100% agree. And uh, to piggyback on your kind of second part of your point, Jen, is that mythologies a lot of times are created after the fact. It's yeah. like not, it's not like it was even present in the moment. It was that somebody after the fact, the way you're retelling history and the way you're creating these mythologies is a lot of times it could be hundreds of years later. And then, you know, it's kind of really, really nice to kind of unlearn you know what a lot of us have learned kind of growing up and I just thought a lot about my world history classes you know and I'm like my gosh that's so Eurocentric all my world history was so Eurocentric and so white centered really yeah and you think about wow this is a really good perspective to have for sure Um, I love that you just said unlearning because I feel like the last couple of years of my life have been sort of a great unlearning (laughs) Of all of these things that I was taught were true, but they were actually just oftentimes completely lies or very one-sided or missing a lot of information. And it's interesting to be a teacher when you are going through a time of unlearning, because I think our, our kind of inherent way is to take what we learn and immediately give it back to our students. At least that's how I often operate. Um, if I'm learning something new and really, you know, finding it interesting and digging down deep into it, it shows up in my teaching. How could it not? And so when you're trying to unlearn, Mm -hmm. it creates this sort of like carefulness or concern around ideas that you are planting in your students' minds as true. Mm hmm. When you know that, like, you were given by well-intentioned people a lot of ideas they also thought were true that were not. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I agree. Yeah, even thinking about like the ways in which I describe something being correct, you know, like this is the mm. correct voice leading. You know, mm. I, I I sat in on a teaching demonstration the other day and that that phrase was used, like this is the correct voice leading. Um and I, it, that's not never said in a way that is trying to be exclusionary or um, putting someone above someone else, but it's only it's not universally correct. <laughs> and, right, we don't set it in its proper context often. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's that idea that a value judgment has been born. Unfortunately, that something about whiteness raises it, makes it, you know, more quality or more complex or more whatever it is. It, you know, this has been created through years and years and years, mm-hmm. and it's like. It takes a lot of undoing to to realize that that's a com- complete false and you know utterly ridiculous type of way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my brother-in-law told me this quote about a history is history is a myth agreed upon, um, and I think that is mm-hmm. a, a a good way of thinking of our history. It's you know this these legends and myths and stories that we tell ourselves, and then. A, a large enough group agrees that these are the these are the ones that we remember and and for you know right. for a long time western civilization uh white men have been the ones who have been able to agree upon the myths and so of course they're going to um agree with the things that prop prop them up right um and i think that's you know that's i think all humans do that you know I th- and you know i'm i'm uh, susceptible of doing that as anyone else um and so let's let's look at some of the the interesting things that he pulls out when he talks about the Western canon in music, if we can. And I thought it was interesting how he quotes um, some of the the uh, the chapter on Greek music and the introduction in the Grout Poliska, which um, yeah I used as an undergrad. Um, I'm not sure if ben I actually used. didn't. Really? Yeah, you didn't you, use Grout. No, we used Stolba. Oh wow! Yeah, we had grout. That's we were one year apart at the same university, so that's really interesting. That is that is really weird. (laughs) But yeah, no, we used Stolberg. But I thought I thought it was really curious how he showed that there's a section where talks about kind of the history of European culture. And in an older edition of the Grout Pliska, which is a history textbook that has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he use they use words like you know what European culture, its calendar, its astronomy, um, its primary religion. They use like it, and yeah. in le- a later version, those its have been replaced by ours, like our primary religions, our philosophy. And I thought that was so interesting because, as he points out, you would think it would be the other way around. Like rather from going from this, like, this is our thing to like this more general, like, okay, this is how it was at that time. But it was the other way around. Like they're like uh, doubling down on, Hey, this is our, our, our history, our culture, and we need to elevate it. I just found that really surprising. Well, and you can see that they were taking care and attention to address some of these things in some ways, because like even changing European culture to the culture of European Europe and America is known as Western culture 
to distinguish it from traditional cultures of Asia, right? Like they're adding all yeah. this language around these ideas, but then making this change that makes it so exclusionary. Right. Yeah. What about the students who aren't from that culture? Right. <laughs> like, right. Like I read that as a white guy. I'm like, yeah, that is my culture. I don't, you know, but obviously if you're not from that culture, you're, you're going to read that and be like, wait, well, where am I in this? You know, am I allowed into this, in, into this? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then he goes into, I know we're, we're zooming ahead, so listeners apologize, <laughs> but... Um, Just read the book. Read I mean, the book. It's so um, good. I wanted to know your, your thoughts on this foreign language requirement, because again, my degree is in composition. I did have a foreign language requirement, but I think it was quite minimal compared to what you all had to do. Um, so he basically says that the foreign language requirement as it is, 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 a, is a construct of this white racial frame and do you find that to be a compelling argument definitely definitely (laughs) yeah more than compelling yeah of course it is of course it's more than a residue of all of this history that he details in white mythologies Mm and i think a lot of the times german specifically not just even central europe i think like german specifically mandatory yeah, yeah has been often mandatory and you know we've had a lot of discussions about our grad language requirement and uh i think really good ones and man what a great what a what a man i mean if if people come in let's say somebody come in comes in i had a ta two years ago that spoke thai and english and i was like oh wow you should be like pretty much done your requirement because for masters you know you only require one language but then you know because thai is (laughs) outside of the white racial frame you know it's just creates these barriers and it's like why why it's because of white mythologies that's why you know so i've totally totally seen this in practice it's not just something that's in the book i mean it's something that affects graduate students and degrees and the way people study music because then you'll somebody might say oh if it pertains to your research and then it's like well then if somebody doesn't support your research on Thai music, then your language requirement is not going to get approved. And it's just like right. a whole domino effect, you know, um, that's unhealthy for our field and unhealthy for progressing past some of these these barriers that have been created to prevent people from studying right. works outside, you know, right. whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of terms, obviously, now reading this chapter, Western, European-centric, white um, music. So, yeah. yeah, that's my take. I think, you know, it's interesting. I'm married to someone with a PhD also, but in psychology. And so we've talked a lot about the differences between going through a PhD program as a social scientist and going through a PhD program in the humanities, which is essentially where music theory is situated. Um, and <laughs> I recall at some point bringing up the fact that I took nine semesters of foreign language during my master's and PhD and my husband being like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> that is so much time devoted to something. And he's right. That's four and a half years, four and a half years of foreign language that I took as part of my degree when I already had four years of Spanish from high school. Spanish. Yep. Um, I did too. And 
you know, and you said you should be done with your requirement because you already have one language, right? But when I was at UNT, the master's requirement was German, no matter what. That's it. You had to take German. So I actually have five semesters of German because I took all four undergraduate semesters and then a graduate reading course. And the other sort of crazy thing about all of it is that none of that foreign language, not a single bit of it, counted towards my degree. Hmm. So it was a requirement that I be able to pass foreign language exams. But but the foreign language courses required to pass those exams were not built into the degree and mandated all this extra time and money spent. So it was like, well, if you already have this skill, I remember how deficient that made me feel. This idea that like, I probably should have already done this. Like if I had known better, right, I I would have already had German proficiency. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, uh... (laughs) and now looking at it, I'm like, that's dumb. (laughs) It's it's unfair. It's, you know, and and I was essentially like, I, I happen to love studying language. I don't I don't feel like mad about it, I guess. Like I enjoyed that study and it ended up being relevant to my dissertation. But my dissertation was not really relevant to me. You know? <laughs> and so right. I don't know what I would feel or think if I had been able to write the dissertation that I actually wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Spanish, Spain is in Europe. Right? I know. Yeah, that comes and up. Spanish yeah, doesn't that do comes up. in Spain. Yeah, that comes yeah, up. Yeah, the Iberian bit. Peninsula. Yeah, yeah that that's is. part of yeah, Europe. It's in the book, because but... it's situated so close to Africa is really <laughs> mm-hmm. the reality that exclude makes it excluded from, right? Yeah, and then the the, the Muslim influence, of course, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that that gets us, it's, gets it excluded from the conversation of mm-hmm. you know, Western civilization. Um, yeah, I was glad to read that he was talking about Spain because I definitely had that exact question that he mentions in that part about, wait, Spain is in Europe, but yet. I recall yeah. thinking that as an undergrad and wondering why. Yeah. It was very clear to me that Spain, <laughs> Portugal, even like Eastern Europe, Russia, that they were all excluded yeah. from whatever it was that we were talking about. That was very clear to me. But I did mm-hmm. not understand why. And it was never explicit. Nobody ever said, like, Spain doesn't count, you know? <laughs> but it doesn't take... It's not hard to infer. Right. When... Okay, was I dumb for not realizing that Slav actually means, like, slave? Did you guys know I that? I didn't know it until I read Phil's article. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that either. Until I read it. Mm-hmm. No. I, I was like, am I not cool for not knowing that but then i was like it's so easy to see but then i like i don't know why i didn't mm-hmm. process it that. now like, makes sense to me why so many like, of those countries took that word out of their title yeah like it used to be czechoslovakia yes. now it's the czech republic or czechia right, right? and right. it makes sense to me now why that would have been taken out of yeah. the title of so many of these countries mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. that was a good point yeah and so, well, so let's move on to the next chapter since we were talking about Germany and German language, because the next chapter he talks uh, in depth about uh, Heinrich Schenker um, and his legacy, because that was kind of at the the heart of a lot of the controversy that came out. Though 
Yule's own uh, presentations and papers were not just about Schenker. You know, it was right. it was about all sorts of things. And he mentions how this was just a small sliver of his you know, SMT presentation, but this was the uh, igniter of quite the controversy. And so, again. I'm not a theorist, all right? Not to that level. I took one <laughs> class in Shankarian analysis for my master's, and that was enough. Um, but you all have had to deal with Schenker in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so what are your thoughts on uh, what he had to say about Heinrich Schenker and his legacy? Well, I love that he starts with these unwritten rules. Did you all see the five unwritten rules? Yeah. The Schenkerian theory. Number one is, if possible, don't mention Schenker's racism. <laughs> If yeah. confronted about it, feign ignorance. <laughs> I think that is really spot on. I mean, I think of all the things, how much time you think in the last, say, let's say, see, 1970, say 60 years, has been spent talking about Schenker and Schenkerian theory and extensions of Schenkerianism. How much of that time has been devoted towards acknowledging Schenker's racism? I mean, it's got to be less than 1% of that time, you know? And I agree with the way he has that as, like, the number one rule because, you know, it's unwritten. But yet, those of us that have studied Schenker and been to past SMTs and kind of have an idea of the history of the teaching of Schenkerian analysis... You are actually familiar with the five unwritten rules of Shankarian <laughs> teaching, just just like they are here. I mean, it's very, very well laid out. Um, yeah, I don't know what you thought about that part, Jen. Well, I've never been like a true practitioner, but one of the things that popped out to me as I read this was that in all my time where I took these classes, you know, I was required to take these classes and sometimes seminars and other things that involved this um, method of analysis, I was never directed to read any of these explicit, explicitly racist source material, right? I, you know, we were encouraged to read the five, the, to the graphic analyses, right, that Dover has published. Look at those. And it was mentioned in passing that Der Freisatz was in the library, translated, but I was never required to read any of it. Unlike everyone else, I had to read so much Riemann. I Fati even who comes up in here. Mm -hmm. We read, you know, yeah. chunks of Fati. We read Rameau. Um, so all of these other Schoenberg, we read all of these people widely. But when it comes to Schenker, we did not. And I never really put those two pieces together that that's probably because there's stuff in there that I was not supposed to find. Right. There was this like whole layer in there of hatred towards me as well. Right. I'm inferior, according to him as well, um, that that I wasn't ever supposed to see. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. And it didn't really yes. occur to me at the time. Necessarily. Mm -hmm. But now looking at it, I'm like, I mean, it was so carefully curated so that number one would be insured, right? Like you would not find out yeah. that this is the actual background here. Yeah. Right. I think it might be good, at least for some of our listeners, if we gave a brief summary of what Shankarian analysis is, like little one to two sentence <laughs> definition of what it, what it, what its function is. 
um, so that people can have an idea of how this is then connected to his you know beliefs on you know social hierarchies and things like that. So, Ben, as the resident Shankirian, what's your what's your what's your one what's your one sentence definition? And you may not use ersatz in your definition. Right. <laughs> I won't. Don't worry. I don't know. Let's see. Okay, I have to summarize Shankarian theory. Okay. Um, so, Shankarian analysis is a way of approaching tonal music that divides the music from like the surface layer, which would be the note-to-note -note progression of a particular piece, to say a middle ground level, and then also to a, a background level, which is just a simple fundamental structure, or mi, re, do, and um, implying then that there's a connection between, or organic connection, you might even say, between those note-to-note -note surface um, progressions and the middle through the middle ground to the background level. So you have these levels of analysis of tonal music, and there is a very hierarchical kind of way of approaching uh, tonal music. I don't know exactly. That's great. And then as a follow-up, what what kind of music does this analysis work best for? Um, and what were his, what were Shanker's thoughts on uh, the validity of the music that um, was able to use this? Uh, analysis or revealed something in it right so Schenker Schenker's theory basically is derived from Beethoven if you ask me I would say that it's mainly Beethoven um, and then you have these other 11 composers that Schenker very very explicitly refers to as you know the masters or masterworks obviously if you're familiar with more familiar with Schenkerian theory you are you know that he refers to masterworks a lot and geniuses and greatness which as we know is tied to whiteness and uh yeah he has a very 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 limited scope and a very very low tolerance for people that are outside of his select few handful of composers and if you don't fit his models um Schenker writes you off entirely and says that you're terrible uh, i wish there was a better way of saying that but I guess that's the best I can come up with on the spot. But yeah, is that pretty much it? Yeah, I thought that that was great. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I need to do more prep work for that part. Well, <laughs> it's hard, actually. And I think, I mean, Phil points out over and over that those ideas about music come inherently from his ideas about people. Yes. Yeah. That they are 100% tied together. I found the two quotes that he gives... Uh, in the book about first about race and then about um, gender and he says only one thing can be of service recognition of the truth it is time that Germans freed themselves from the illusion that all men and all nations are equal let Germans be alive to the superior quality of their human propagating soil I, I mean like that. ouch <laughs> it's it's so direct and so horrifying that I don't even know how to think about it. And that, well, I do know how to think about it. It's disgusting. Um, and then about women, despite their mutual dependency, in terms of necessity of existence, they remain equal. 
Okay, noted. Um, the man ranks above the woman. The producer is superior to the merchant or the laborer. The head prevails over the foot. The coachman is more than the wheel of the wagon. He steers. The genius means more than the people who represent merely the soil from which he springs. So I just exist to make more mm. white men. Ouch. Mm. <laughs> I can feel the sting of it. It's uh, the fact that I was never taught any of this really bothers me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one ever made a passing reference. Like, well, mm-hmm. there are some less than savory ideas in there as well. Like, not even a veiled hint was ever mm-hmm. made. Yeah. He calls that epistemological ignorance. Knowing not to know. Mm-hmm. Like, they know that those things should not get let out, right? Because that's what happens now, you know. Um, but this this begs the question of can can't we just separate the person from the theory right because that's (laughs) one of the big things is like okay heinrich schenker's beliefs are abhorrent you know they're terrible but you know his theory you know is useful can't we can't we still save that you know what do you think of that I think my views on that have completely done a 180. I think back in, if you'd asked me this, you know, five, ten years ago, I probably would have said, yes, you can separate the person from the theory. And, you know, I don't feel bad about trying to do that. I'm just trying to use the theory. But I think I really have done a complete 180 on this. And really, those of you who haven't read this chapter, please do, because... It does a wonderful, wonderful job of supporting that claim mm-hmm. and talking about why, through the first, uh, first wow, through primary source material, why that claim is not really that compelling. Um, that the the theory is inherently linked, especially in this case, and you cannot really, with any good reason, um, separate the person from the theory. So yeah, I would say. I've done a complete 180 on that particular issue. I, he does a brilliant job of explaining how we should move forward with teaching Schenker. And that that includes both acknowledging who he really was and where this theory really comes from and its ties to these <clears throat> fairly, truly <laughs> despicable ideas that that needs to be at the lead-in, not like a you find it out years later reading a book on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but also that it should be optional. Students yeah. should not be required to learn this. That if it's something they're interested in learning and studying, fine. But that it should not be a mandatory part of graduate education in music theory. Or undergraduate, he points out quite wisely and rightly that several of the commonly used textbooks are based on these theories, you know, whether or not they are explicitly saying that they are completely set up to, you know, portray music in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting from someone kind of more on the outside of this is that Shankiri analysis, by definition, is a very limited 
way of looking at music mm-hmm. if the creator of it was like these 11 composers 11 composers out of how many billions of people who have lived like seriously yeah. it's just kind of crazy to think small. like these ele- this 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 theory is good for these 11 guys <laughs> who yeah like i mean it's just like if you kind of step back like that's great but if if you are formed by this white mythology where the musics of these people are the greatest that have ever existed you don't think about the fact that billions of people have existed that people have been making music from all over the world for thousands of years like if you take a step back you're like well that's just kind of silly that we focus so much energy on this one way of analyzing music that only works for 11 people out of the billions of people who have ever lived right like it's great if you want to study Beethoven or Brahms or, or those folks. You shank your analysis. It's great. Um, but don't divorce it from who it is. And also think beyond that. And I think it might be just a natural um, consequence of our move to a more open perspective of what music is. That Schenker analysis will still exist, but it will just fade to the periphery a little bit because we will see how it doesn't stack up to way to understanding music that is beyond those 11 composers and we can start to create models that work for these other musics and it it will just kind of fade to the periphery naturally i don't know i think yeah totally i mean i was surprised sorry jen well no i was just gonna say like this is jumping back to chapter two but when he talks about um he tells a story about how he wrote an article in Rimsky-Korsakov mm. that was initially rejected. And one of the reviewers that rejected it said... Um, about the cemetery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Few yeah. spectrum readers will buy the claim that Rimsky-Korsakov's use of some device or other at some particular historical time is all the ticket that needs to gain admission to the cemetery of great composers. <laughs> and I thought... You literally just said there's no hope. Like, they're all dead. They're all dead. There will Mm -hmm. be no more. The great composers have already lived, and they're all dead. And this Russian guy doesn't belong there. Uh, Like, I needed the humor because I was feeling the sting. I know. Like, what a lack of imagination. Yeah. Yeah. So sad to get that comment back. What do you do with that comment, even? I don't know. Well, I love him for publishing it in this book because. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) I think. Why not, right? Yeah. Hmm. Well, what I was going to talk about, Paul, to kind of piggyback on what you were just saying here, was that those 11 composers and the fact that Shankarian analysis is for tonal music that itself even just elevates tonal music as if tonal music Mm -hmm. is somehow better than other musics, you know, and the amount of time that we spend talking about just tonal music in general, Mm -hmm. you know, is another kind of argument to your point. Um, I don't know if Phil actually says that specifically, but, uh, yeah, I just wrote down that a high level of artistry as it is linked to specifically German-ness. He definitely makes that point. And I was thinking tonal music is not a higher art. That, that itself is a myth that it's a higher art to write tonal music. It's just one type mm-hmm. of music to write. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, this book just makes you 
ask yourself really good questions and mm -hmm. offers really, really good evidence and arguments and interpretations of a lot of it is primary source material, which is really, really, really great work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that seems to be a good pausing <laughs> spot for yeah. us today as we journey through um, on music theory. Uh, we will be back with our next installment of our summer long book club where we look at chapters four and five and so uh, if you want to read ahead you can do that or if you want to wait till <laughs> our next episode listen to what we think and then read it that's fine whatever uh, but if you have thoughts or questions or comments uh, don't forget that you can always reach us on facebook instagram um, you can email us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on Apple Podcasts um, or, or a, a review or a rating, right? Right now there is one review. I think this is hilarious. So if you've stayed along uh, this far in this episode, you'll, you'll find out that there is one review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, and it's by my 11-year-old nephew. And it goes something like, like the music and and Uncle Paul. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So if you want to join my 11-year-old nephew in reviewing Note Doctor's podcast, go ahead and do it. Um, add to the choir that's, I'm sure, going to be <laughs> singing um, uh, on Apple Podcasts. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you all later. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.